in departments in the military, you walk down the hall, you see a commanding officer or supervisor, and they ask you how you're doing. You say, great, sir, doing great. And you keep walking, right? You don't, you don't stop and say, actually, sir, uh, my life is falling apart. Marriage is falling apart. Uh, I've been very depressed. I've been drinking too much. No, you don't do that. You just say, oh, everything's great. You put on a fake smile on your face and you keep walking. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. This episode of Better Thinking, I have Michael Sugru, who is a former Air Force captain and retired police sergeant. And he discusses issues that prevent law enforcement professionals and, and other first responders from seeking mental health services in the US and his own personal experience. He talks about some of the specifics that he went through himself, in particular when he started to become reckless in his desperate attempts to manage his post-traumatic stress uh, with regards to putting himself into situations where he could have quite easily have been killed. Um, His story is fascinating because he's someone who's incredibly insightful in this space of going out and looking at, you know, self-caring and and seeking support, but only now after the fact. Previously, you know, he was riddled with quite quite an extensive amount of uh, guilt that he wasn't strong enough, you know, the, this kind of fear of being weak um, and an embarrassment of talking about his emotions. So quite a transformational uh, story told here by Michael and I know you're going to absolutely enjoy it. And please, before you, uh, you know, proceed into this, make sure afterwards you share this episode Tell other first responders, you know, it's such an important thing that we go out and do in terms of promoting well-being and mental health to tell everyone who might be going through a difficult time that it's okay to reach out. Hope you enjoy the episode. Michael Sugru, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for coming along to discuss really this, this space around uh, stigma, I suppose, in regards to mental health and how it plays out in this space around first responders, whether it be law enforcement, whether it be you know military, you know the, the, these key health uh, and, and 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 you know um, safety services. I know that you've got a, a wealth of experience, and wanted to discuss this with you because your experience in the US, going through the work that you've been uh, doing and talking about, is very similar. At least I found here in Australia as well. So thanks for coming on the show and looking forward to having a chat. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. We might start a little bit with uh, your background uh, so that our listeners can can find out a little bit more about you um, and then kind of get into that space that uh, I, I suppose is the real difficult one for uh, not only services that are trying to fulfill a you know, a, a large population of great, great workers out there, whether it be, you know, ambulance officers, police officers, military personnel and the like. Uh, but they're, they're, they're trying to grapple as well with what does mental health mean. And unfortunately, at the moment, it doesn't seem like it's marrying up too well. But let's find out a little bit about you to start with. Sure. Uh, my career actually started right after college. Um, I went into the Air Force as a officer. I was a second lieutenant. And I was in what's called security forces. And that's basically military police 
we deal with anti-terrorism, uh, force protection, global force protection, um, nuclear security, and uh, air-based ground defense. And I actually did that for about six and a half years. Um, I served in Europe. I actually lived in Germany for two years. I spent some time in the Middle East and South America. Um, I actually got out of the Air Force in 2004 and immediately transitioned into civilian law enforcement. And so here in California, I attended a police academy, was sponsored through a city uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area. My department is about 45 minutes outside of San Francisco. And I started my civilian career with them. And I went through a variety of assignments. I made it through the initial training program. And I worked as a patrol officer uh, for a period of about a year and a half until I was promoted to a field training officer. And that's a position where we actually train new officers coming out of the police academy or also officers that um, change departments. They may have previously worked for one police department and now they are joining our department. So my job was to kind of train them and get them up to speed on how we do things within our county and with our city. Um, after that, I was promoted to a detective. And for two years of my three years as a detective, I was actually undercover on a statewide drug task force and where I specialized in uh, targeting mid to high level drug dealers. And after that, I uh, served within the department as a property crimes and narcotics detective. And ultimately, I was promoted to the rank of sergeant, uh, where I led patrol teams um, on the street. And I also served as a public information officer. And I did that for about 14 years. And I ultimately retired in July of 2018. Uh, now I do a lot of volunteer work and public speaking, uh, focused on basically first responder suicide prevention and focusing on what I like to call as PTSI, uh, PTSD, but I like post-traumatic stress injury. Um, the reason why I like that term is for me personally, I think for a lot of first responders, it's an injury that's based on exposure to trauma. And in most cases, we're talking years and years of trauma. Um, there are, you know, single big incidents that stick out for a lot of us. Uh, for me personally, it's a combination of years of little incidents and then a few big incidents, which ultimately caused my injury. And that injury actually led to me medically retiring as a police officer. And so now, after doing years of recovery, um, and focusing on getting better, I'm actually in a place now where I can help other people. And, and that's my mission now is to give back and help people that are going through what I went through or similar situations to that. Michael, I like the idea of PTSD. Uh, I, I, I actually um, use PTSR um, because I think there's a post-traumatic stress response. It's the only normal thing that someone can can experience, and um, I, I remove the, the the idea that it's a disorder by talking about it being a response. You know, when when, when we kind of look at the context of someone experiencing you know what, what you're describing lots of little incidences and and, and a few larger incidences uh, it's not an unusual um uh, understanding that someone in that sort of context and obviously haven't gone through your incidents in in in, in detail but uh, in that sort of context we'd expect that someone could have the the normal reactions you know the normal responses uh of you know being 
on edge, being a bit more hypervigilant, uh, you know, being a, scanning for threats, uh, you know, having having an, a, a level of awareness that's certainly heightened all the time, you know, and then obviously feeling all those discomforts that go along with what it might feel like, you know, experience uh, look like in those actual situations. And, you know, for most people, we want to avoid those feelings. No one likes to feel uh, under threat or under attack. It, it's kind of this odd uh, the idea in the in the um, uh, DSM that if someone experiences discomfort, that they should somehow be enjoying it or, or or liking it or actually wanting more of it, we naturally have a have a uh, avoidance response. And so, of course, you know PTSD can can quite easily be um, you know, experienced. I just like it PTSR, and I like your 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 version of PTSI. It's a better response. Absolutely. And, you know, it does affect everybody, not just first responders. Um, but the thing is, as first responders, and when I say that, you know, I include firefighters, paramedics, dispatchers, police officers, the military. We don't have a choice to avoid the, that negative trauma. Our job is to, in many cases, run towards that trauma or get to that trauma as quickly as we can. And the unique thing about us is that we have to be in control. Uh, we have to bring control to disorder, and, and that's our job. And along with that, you know, oftentimes we have to build ourselves up to where we have to feel invincible, almost like superhero-like, to where even though we know we may get killed, we may get injured, our partners may get killed or injured, we still have to go to these situations. We can't just simply go, yeah, that doesn't sound too good. I'm, I'm not going to go to that one. I'll wait till the next call. You know, it's, it's in our, in our country, we have 911. So if you call 911, that means that most likely you're in an emergency situation and you're asking for help. And our job is we have to help. We have no choice. And that's the unique thing about first responders is that we get exposed to so much trauma much more than the average person. And it's not to say that average people don't experience trauma because they do. And there's a lot of people out there suffering. But the thing with first responders and military is that we're repeatedly exposed to it over and over and over. And in lots of cases, we're talking about a 30 year plus career of trauma. And, and I like to equate it like a jar. You know, you fill up this jar slowly through your career of this trauma and it builds and builds and builds till it gets to the top of the jar and it starts spilling over the sides. And that's where we have the real problem is if you let yourself get to that point to where you haven't been addressing the PTSI and now in many cases, it, it feels like it's too late. What are the barriers that you've noticed among your, whether it be colleagues, friends, uh, those that you've spoken to that have gotten in the way of seeking support? What, what, what is it? Is, is, is it systemic? Is it on a personal level? What, what are the sorts of things that you've heard? I think a lot of it is culturally based. Um, I think it's also personally based, but you know, it takes a certain type of personality to go into the work of being a first responder. Uh, many times we're type A. Um, like I said, we um, are decisive. We take charge. We make decisions. And, you know, along with this culture, like I said earlier, is that we don't have a choice and we have to respond to these very chaotic situations, uh, whether it be a fight, 
um, a riot, uh, domestic violence call in progress, an active shooter situation, a fatal car accident. And, and we have to go to these, these situations and we have absolutely no choice. And the thing is when we get on scene to these cases, I'll just use an example. Let's, let's just use a simple, a bar fight as an example. And, and we had a lot of those in my career, but here you are, you're a police officer and you're going into a filled bar with numerous intoxicated people. You're far outnumbered. In many cases, there's many people who are bigger and stronger than you, yet you have to go into that situation and make them believe that you are in charge, that you're in control, and that they need to listen to you. And that if they don't listen to you, there's going to be repercussions for that. And so even knowing that you know, you're far outnumbered and, and the dangers are all around you, you're talking about people with bottles, potential weapons, like I said, people intoxicated, they could have pull cues, they could have all sorts of things. They could have knives on them, guns on them. And, and here you are going into the situation to bring calm into disorder. And so you have to have this, this persona and this personality about yourself that you believe. And so you have to maintain that and you have to carry that on through all your calls, through all your shifts for many years. And so I think what it comes down to when I say the culture is that you can't show weakness. You can't show that you're vulnerable. And so for me personally, I believe that showing any kind of emotion or showing that things had an effect on me was a sign of weakness. Um, I know now that it's not, but think about it. If I'm going into these situations, I can't show weakness to the general public that I'm dealing with. And on the same side, I can't show weakness to my partners even more so because I want them to be able to trust. Oh, I can do my job and that I'm not scared that I can go in and take care of business that I have their back and I'm going to be there when they need me. And so it kind of just permeates where you just go on through your career to where you just don't feel comfortable talking about this stuff sharing this stuff and it just builds and builds and builds in some sense your primary response was to try and uh, disguise what you were feeling to avoid uh, that coming out and so that effectively no one would know about it and you would somehow manage it you'd deal with it you'd you'd uh, get over it or whatever it might be well yeah you you think it's going to go away and for me personally i started drinking more um, you know, I, I was isolating. I was depressed. I thought it would it was well, it was numbing me. It was making me temporarily forget about the things. Mm. But the problem was that when I woke up the next day, guess what? The problems were there, mm. and they were actually getting worse by the day. I mean, I think a lot of times first responders turn to alcohol as a primary coping mechanism. Um, I've seen a lot of people I know personally that have used that. Why? Because it, it numbs you. In a lot of cases, it helps you fall asleep, and but it doesn't cure the problem. You know, it, it's like putting a Band-Aid on something where you actually need an operation to actually fix it, and this Band-Aid approach doesn't help. It just makes it worse. Mm. 
it's interesting. It's so enticing though, because it, it, it works so effectively as a temporary aid. And, 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 you know, we, we know that it can numb us very quickly and fast and we can get that response of being able to switch off. But as you say, the accumulation effect of, you know, effectively then not getting very good sleep, um, you know, feeling worse the next day and, you know, you wake up and the problem hasn't gone away, you know, has a has a cycling effect. But uh, in in the moment, it's very enticing to just say, oh, I'll just have a have another beer or have another wine. Absolutely, and, and even before you get to that point, and it's common in the culture, and you know, a lot of times after a shift, people would get together, let's say, and, and have a few drinks or kind of hang out and kind of joke about what happened during the shift. And, you know, they're not there talking about the issues. They're not there talking about their emotions and feelings. In in many cases, they're just shrugging it off and and pretending like none of this has an effect. And, And I've seen it. I've been guilty of myself where you're on just a horrible call and somebody will say something that's, you know, it's, it's not funny, but at the time you laugh at it and it's just kind of show that, yeah, okay, this doesn't have effect on me and we're just doing our job and this is what we do. And we see this every day. It's no big deal. Can you give us an example of something that, that, um, uh, you know, would, would be discussed and kind of laughed at to, to effectively push, push the attention away from that? Is it kind of like a close call and someone talks about, you know, how, you know, potentially they were in a very dangerous sort of situation or what, what are the sorts of things that, that, that um, have, have come up that you've heard? Well, I think you're actually right on point with what you just said. And a lot of times it's where you just narrowly miss tragedy or extreme danger, whether that be getting in a car accident, um, getting attacked, um, getting shot, um, a near miss, like you said, where you just, you know, deep down, you actually know that you almost died or you almost got seriously injured, but yet you kind of joke that off. And so you're not really looking or absorbing at that internal feeling where you, you almost died. Um, I can give you an example where early on in my career I was detective and um, I was undercover. So I looked nothing like a police officer. I had a shaved head earrings. I had a goatee on And we had a case that we were investigating where there was a a house burglary or residential burglary. And in that case, uh, somebody had taken a laser-sided revolver. We went to scope out this vehicle in the garage. We had no um, anticipation of contacting anybody whatsoever. We were just going to find out where this car was, get our game plan together for several hours later to where we up and wait for this person to come back to the car and we could take them down. And so we're at this vehicle and it looks empty at first. My partner walks off. We're in an underground garage. He walks off to where I can't see him. And I start taking pictures of the back of the car for operations plan with my cell phone. Next thing you know, I see a head pop up in the back seat and I'm like immediately in shock because I wasn't expecting it. And now mind you, I look nothing like a police officer. I actually look like a criminal. Lift up my shirt to where you can see my gun and my badge. I'm trying to identify myself as a police officer. And the door swings open. And it's this kid that we're looking for. And I'm like, hey, you know, I'm trying to talk to him. He immediately jumps out of the car and just starts running away from me. Well, as he's running, he's reaching into his waistband. I immediately pull out my handgun. I'm chasing behind him. I'm yelling, police stop. 
I eventually start yelling expletives in that if you don't stop, I'm going to effing kill you. And by the grace of God, and I was a millisecond from shooting this kid, and it would have been fully justified, he took his hand from his waistband and immediately dropped to the ground. And it turns out he had the fully loaded laser-sided revolver in his pants, and that's what he was reaching. And at that time, in that moment, that was the closest I had ever come to shooting anybody in my life. And I remember I immediately broke down at the scene. I mean, I, I lost it. But then I was like, I had to pull myself together because you're a cop. This is your job. Like, why are you breaking down? Mm. And, and, you know, I had to come with, to grips. And there, there's people joking about it in the call. And was, though, I, I internalized. I almost killed this kid. And he was a kid. He was maybe 16 years old and, you know, had not committed any major crimes. It would have been fully justified, but had to live with taking this guy's life. And it, it really bothered me that I almost did. And like I said, it would have been justified. I mean, no ifs, ands, or buts. I mean, I, I waited. I hesitated. And thank God I didn't shoot him. Thank God he's alive. But that took a toll. But the thing is, I couldn't tell my partners about that. I couldn't tell other people about that because that would have been a sign of weakness. What were, what were you afraid of if you were to have? That, you know, that's a tough question. I don't know exactly what, what I was afraid of. I mean, what, what comes to mind by you just asking me that right now is I guess I was afraid of taking someone's life. I mean, just that's that's the bottom line is that we signed up to do that and we are asked that if we need to, you know, can we do that? And I knew that if I had to, I could do that. But what bothered me was that nobody, nobody wants to do that. And I almost did that. And so I think for me, that was the reality that this might actually happen someday. What were you afraid of in regards to speaking about with, whether it be any of your superiors or colleagues about that incident? Well, I think that I would, I would be embarrassed because for me, it was a sign of weakness and it, it was a sign that, you know, I was vulnerable. I was scared and you can't be that way. And we cannot show hesitate. We cannot show fear. We definitely can't show it at the time. Um, but what is healthy is when you get to a place where you can and things have calmed down or things controlled and things have slowed down, that's when you need to share it. That's when you need to express it. And I think slowly the culture is changing to where that is happening and there's critical incident debriefs after major situations. Um, But a lot of times we need to have smaller debriefs after some of these smaller situations and just talk about it, address it. But how do you do that if you're not comfortable talking to others about it? And, And that's the key is that you have to have outlets people, resources that you can trust and that you feel comfortable opening up with. That, that's the real issue right there is changing the culture to where you trust it, you feel comfortable, and you can share it when you need to. In the U.S., has it, has it been frowned upon in terms of opening up about how your feelings are and does, does it have an impact on, at least previously, has it had an impact on your career or how your colleagues view you 
Um, do, you, do you know anything about that side? Um, well, you know, I can only speak personally, uh, but I, I can tell you about a situation for me where it, it absolutely did impact me. And it was an ac- absolute pivotal moment for me. Um, I was involved in a fatal shooting where, unfortunately, I did take someone's life. There was a, a subject who was trying to kill a couple with a butcher knife inside a condominium. And um, unfortunately, we had to take his life to save our lives and the two other people's lives. And when that happened, it starts a whole process of things, investigations, uh, lawsuits in my case, what was called a coroner's inquest in the county that I work in. And that happened about five months after my fatal shooting. And and what that was, was it was a, a public forum where there was a judge or a commissioner. There was a full jury uh, with civilians and the courtroom was open to the public. So there was lots of officers from my agency there. There are the other officers in this fatal shooting. There's three other officers with me. Uh, there was the family members of the person that we killed was there. Report. And in this hearing was the first time that I heard the radio or dispatch tapes of that night. And it immediately brought me right back to that situation. And it actually gave me goosebumps on the back of my neck. I mean, I could feel the hair on the back of my, my neck. I, I got tunnel vision. I started sweating. My whole body just changed. And I got on the stand and I was literally feet away from this jury. And I had to explain what happened that night for the first time in this public courtroom. And I ended just breaking down on the stand in front of all these people. I mean, it was probably 60, 70 people in this courtroom. And, and I had never broken down like that in front of anybody my entire life. And here I was just a hot mess. And so eventually I got excused. I composed myself like five, 10 minutes, came back to the courtroom. Uh, we went through the entire hearing with the other officers testifying, other witnesses testifying. And it concluded. A couple weeks later, uh, we got the finding that we wanted, and I got called into a supervisor's office, and I thought they were going to tell me, like, great job, you know, you guys saved lives, you guys did great during this hearing, and what ended up happening meeting was a couple key things. First thing was the genuineness of my emotions got questioned, and what I mean by that was it was either inferred or said that I was acting or putting on a show for the jury. And imagine here I am, a former military officer, a now police sergeant with years of experience, never broken down like that in front of that many people my entire life. I did, and I was embarrassed about it. And now I'm actually being questioned about my integrity and whether or not these were real emotions. At that same meeting, my leadership ability was questioned. And up to this point, my career, not to brag, but to tell you was absolutely flawless. I was promoted anybody. I got all the assignments I wanted. I was on the fast track. My career was impeccable. But now my leadership ability was being questioned. And a short time after that, because I was a new sergeant when this, when the shooting happened and my probation ended up getting extended, which that had never happened to me. I'd never heard of that happening to anybody. And so meeting, what happened was I told myself I would never shoot again. I was not going to do it. I was going to the polar opposite, which I did. And like I said, I became an asshole. 
I became unapproachable. I became just a hard ass supervisor. My expectations were the roof. And I just, I just kept it inside. I was struggling inside and I was getting worse and worse, but I had this fear that I could show that emotion again, because here I am. I did. I wasn't happy about it. I was embarrassed and there was, there was ramifications. And I, I felt that my career was in jeopardy. I mean, obviously my promotion to sergeant was in jeopardy and that started me on the big spiral downwards. Michael, uh, something that just strikes me so strongly in my work as a psychologist here, your story uh, is the exact same story as many that I have seen, which I, I refer to as secondary trauma where uh, your emotions, leadership, you know, being questioned that your probation period being extended, all of this, all of this is in the context of when you're most vulnerable, uh, that someone needs to be there to actually support you. Instead, they turn on you, and and it's it's a it's a secondary insult, you know, or a secondary insult. But uh, sorry, our trauma that that goes out and solidifies, uh, you know, the initial trauma and you know, helplessness and hopelessness that 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 kind of uh, arises in these horrible incidences. Um, I've seen this so many times and it's, it, to me, the significance is, is more in how uh, uh, senior support people respond to their juniors or even to their, to their peers, you know, if, if, if it's not senior level, it's a peer level, how they respond to supporting the person rather than the incident themselves, the, the incident itself. Uh, I, I, that just, just jumped at me. I had to kind of, um, you know, uh, discuss that because I've, I've seen so many, you know, quite senior members of whether it be here in the ACT, it's the AFP, Australian Federal Police or, or the military. We've got a military um, uh, base here, um, particularly in, re- in regards to training officers. Uh, very, very similar things there is it's not really about the primary incident, uh, although that's predominantly what's written up in all the paperwork. It's actually the secondary uh, insult that that creates so much of the damage. Yeah, we call that our administrative betrayal, and, and that's actually huge. And you know, yeah. I work first responders in my volunteer work, and absolutely very common. And most people that I I work with or help. Um, they've been through similar situations. And what I found is that a lot of times when people finally do ask for help over four years of suffering until I actually was thinking about ending my own life to where I finally for help, even when that happened, I had to deal with administrative betrayal time and time again when I was only trying to get help and only trying to get better. And and that's that's the ironic thing here is that a lot of people in leadership positions, they can make or break it. I mean, that, that's, that's the bottom line is that when first responders finally get to that point where they are asking for help, that's when they're most vulnerable and that's when they need the most support that they can get. Not having their backs turned on them, not, you know, being tied. Um, you know, what I realized through my whole process was, is that I was just a number filling a position uh, but up until that point, I gave my absolute all to my agency every single day. 
I mean, I worked my ass off and I was extremely proactive. I went to work every single day, believing that I was making a difference, that I mattered, that what I was doing was, was making a real difference that people were recognizing. And that was going to make an impression forever. And, but what I realized in reality was, is that when I finally asked for help, they don't want you in that in-between status to where you're off work and seeing therapists and going to retreats and getting help. They, they either want you back fully or they don't want you at all. There's this crazy sort of space that absolutely infuriates me because it goes out and suggests that someone who has a expected and normal response to you know what is a horrific situation is now somehow incapable of functioning in their role as they were previously rather than going out and saying it's very normal to you know be absolutely you know unsettled and um you know uh, emotionally raw and you know afraid and frightened and and kind of shaken up by this whole experience rather than saying that someone goes out and says you're either putting it on or you know you're not able to do your job anymore because what you cried on the stand or you know you you broke down after you almost shot a young kid or 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 the infinite other uh, incidences psychology fully appreciates and understands this is the only way to respond. It's called the human response. Yeah. We're somehow saying that you can't then perform a function and it absolutely infuriates me because, you know, the truth is everyone out there who, who, whether they're in police or military or first responders, every day they're doing this, it's just not labeled. You know, for one person uh, it's labeled as a, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder or, you know, we might change, change the, the, the terms there, but they're experiencing the same angst and, and, and challenge. Uh, and I'm not saying that obviously it's not more debilitating for, for some than, than, than others, but we've got to go out and treat it in its first instance before it gets to a point where it's, you know, completely debilitating. But at the first instance, it's not. We, we can go out and support someone through, you know, what, 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 what can be you know, an awful experience and, and, and then just monitor and see how it goes, you know, but let's, let's give them support first rather than, you know, additional insult. And I agree hundred percent. And you're like, for me, I waited too long. And I think the key is addressing it early, addressing it as it happens. And I fully believe most importantly, lives will be saved, but careers can be saved. Yes. And in my case, I have no doubt that if I would have gotten the help and the resources that I needed earlier, and mind you, I put a lot of that on me because I didn't ask for the help and I should have asked for the help. Uh, just putting the blame on others or my agency because there's a lot of things that I could have done and that I should have done. Um, but I think if I would have done those things, I'd still be doing my job today. What do you think those things could have been? And I know obviously reflection is is so much easier to do, uh, but what do you think those things could have been uh, that for you personally would have been helpful? Um, You know, the first thing I can think of is that after my uh, fatal shooting that I went through, you know, I I just rushed to get back to work. We all did. I think we were off maybe two weeks max and we went back to work because why? It's that perception where you want to let everybody know that everything's okay immediately and that nothing's bothering you. And so I think I should have asked for some more time off, but it's just not off. 
is that I would have needed somebody that I trusted and felt comfortable talking to about how I was feeling and what I was going through. And we had a, a department contracted therapist who is very good. Um, but what I needed was a peer who had been through a very similar situation that I had been through. And that's really what I needed is I needed to talk to somebody who had been through some similar stuff. And for me, after my incident, you know, we had two investigations going on, which is completely normal. We have the prosecutor's investigation or the district attorney, and we have an internal investigation for the department. And those always happen anytime there's a fatal incident. But we also got sued. And because of that, I was very limited on who I could talk to. I couldn't just talk to anybody. There was only a very small pool of people that I could talk to. Um, now, because of my volunteer work, I've met a lot of first responders that I can talk to. And so had I have used that resource back then, it really would have made a difference. Um, one of the groups that I volunteer for, it's called the West Coast Post-Trauma Retreat. It's not focused on military. It's focused on first responders. So fire dispatchers, paramedics, police officers, and it's all peer driven. So there's clinicians, there's therapists, and most importantly, there's peers, which is what I do now. And they've been through the program and they spend this week basically helping these six clients to get better. And it, it, it opens your world on the reality that you're not alone, that you're not the only person going through this because you really feel at the time, you feel like you're the only one feeling like this. You feel like, you know, you're abnormal, um, that your feelings are abnormal and you don't, you don't normalize it. But by meeting these other people who have the same feelings, it doesn't have to be the same situation, but they've been through similar traumatic situations. They've had similar responses. Actually realize that you're normal and you're not abnormal. And that helps break the stigma of PTSD, PTSI, because there's stigma. And you know, what I found too is that a lot of these administrators or people in decision-making roles, they haven't, not to say they haven't experienced trauma because I'm sure all first responders have, but in many cases, they haven't experienced as much trauma or maybe like in my case, a fatal officer-involved shooting was very rare at my agency. I mean, very rare. We've only had a few in the entire history of the department. And so I didn't, have anybody comfortable that I felt like I could talk to that I've been through a fatal officer involved shooting. Had I had that resource, I think it could have made a big difference. And, and having that person help me, give me advice, um, tell me about programs like the West Coast post-trauma retreat. Um, we also, where I live, we have first responder support meetings. So once a week, we have an hour long discussion meeting that's open to all first responders. It's confidential. And it's those little things that make such a huge difference and they change this culture. And like I said, it's getting better, uh, but there's a lot more work that needs to be done. What do you say is the most important reason for you for it to be a colleague that's experienced that previously? Uh, why do I say that's so important? Yeah, yeah. Because here's the deal, and I'll just use our agency as an example. Um, most agencies, they have peer support programs, which is great. And um, they've got procedures and they've got documents that talk about this and, and it, they do training. But usually a lot of times people that are peer support, they're popular, they're nice people, um, they're well-liked and um, that you know people like to casually talk to. 
But that doesn't mean that I want to talk to them or feel comfortable about my most personal feelings or my most traumatic incidents that I've been through. And so I firmly believe in what's called street cred. And that's basically someone who's walked the walk, talked the talk, and they've been through it. And, and that's why I do what I do now because I believe based on what I've been through that I have that street cred that first responders can identify with and they can realize that, okay, this guy's been through it. He knows what he's talking about. He actually feels the same way I do. And because of that, now I've got complete strangers that will reach out to me and open up and tell me about their most personal experiences they've been through, about how they're feeling because of what I call street cred. And, and I, I firmly believe that that's trust. It's part of the trust that you know this person knows what they're talking about. I mean, let's mm-hmm. face it, you can read about it in a book, you can study it, and that's great. And it but as first responders, we need that trust as well. And that trust is about, you know, walking through the fire. That makes much more sense because it's, it's about someone that you trust, not only because they've done that, that role, but they have that street credibility. It's, it's almost like having someone that you look up to, a mentor, so to speak, but you get to choose them. They're not a, uh, you know, a service appointed person who is a nice guy um, or, or not, not nice woman, you know, who gets along with lots of people, is very popular, but they're not, they're not there to fulfill that role. They're just a nice person who might, might not still have credibility in each person's eyes. It almost needs to be chosen by the person uh, to kind of say, you know, even, even though they might not have been to my exact sort of scenario, I know they've been through similar things that is important for me to, to, to know. I just have trust in that. Absolutely. And, and, you know, in many cases, especially if it's a small agency, you may have to go outside the agency because yeah. like, like in my scenario, there was nobody at the time that had been through what I'd been through. And so, but had I known others at other agencies who had been through similar situations, who were willing to help and had been trained in this area, I think that would have been very helpful. Um, so like I said, sometimes you have to think outside the box and you keep it internally. Um, you just got to find that right person. And, and that, that applies with therapists, um, with psychiatrists. Um, I have a great therapist. I still go to the, my therapist and she is phenomenal and she gets it. Uh, she's been through it. Um, she was actually involved in a very traumatic experience that she shared with me that was very personal. And by her doing that, and she did that on our, I think it was our first or second meeting, I immediately had that trust, that bond to where I could just tell her anything. And that was critical because mm. I've seen so many therapists who aren't what I call culturally competent. They- first responders or military. They're not aware of what we go through. They're not aware of our training. And so you have to have that right therapist, that right doctor who is familiar with our culture and familiar with what we go through. I mean, that's so important. You can't just go to some random out of Google or a phone book. You have to have someone who knows what they're talking about. This is why with clinicians, I think it's so important to select who you're going to go out and see. I know here at at strategic psychology in the practice, we, we always ask the question around, 
would you like a male or a female? We'll try and, you know, gauge what age someone might, might want to, you know, go out and see because all these little things, uh, they seem little on the outside, but in actual fact, and they're enormous and, and, and we all respond to different things. And I know, for example, exactly what you say, um, I've, I've had a little bit of military training in, in you know, an old hat that I used to wear uh, and that has been very useful and helpful uh, in all sorts of different scenarios, whether it's working with someone who, let's say, for example, you know, do, do, does work in uh, you know, police uh, or whether it's been a young man who just that's the street cred that they, that they um, value. They, 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 they think it's maybe cool or it's you know, tough or whatever it might be. It, it develops trust. And, and it says, maybe I'll, I'll have some more open ears, you know, to this conversation and take something more away from this conversation rather than, you know, if I don't have that trust, I'll, you know, it's easy to blow off and just say, oh, you know, mum and dad are just sending me here, you know, um, I'll, I'll just, you know, get them off, off my back by attending versus actually participating. Okay, my, my agency is sending me to go see this doctor. I'm going to go tell this doctor what they want to hear. So I don't get flagged and so nothing happens and I just go back to work. And that's what happens as opposed to, wow, here's somebody I can trust that I can truly open up to and know that what we talk about is protected and that what we talk about is between that person and I, it's not going anywhere else. Using the word, my apologies, jumping in that, it, it needs to be protected. I know for the military, and I'm going to get this completely wrong, but I think it's called a POPS, which is a post-operation psychology screen um, that every, every member needs to go through after being deployed. And it's with the psychologist. But unfortunately, my understanding is, you know, if you tick a few boxes, there, there could be some administrative, um, you know, processes that, that go in place, which question your you know, your, your capacity, you know, as, as to, you know, whether you meet a criteria or whether we need to go and monitor that more or whatever it might be. And so often it becomes really a, a um, you know, 15 minute or 30 minute, um, you know, lip service, uh, you know, meeting of saying, yes, everything's fantastic and fine. And let's hurry up and get this done because I want to go out and see my, you know, my family that I haven't seen for a long time. You know, that trust has to also be within, you know, a confidentiality that, 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 that we can talk about our feelings and it doesn't have ramifications to whether we can do our job or not. That, 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 that's assessed in a completely different sphere. Absolutely. It is tough because, you know, there has to be protections in place. There has to be procedures. And, you know, obviously if certain things come up, I mean, they have to be addressed. And, you know, like suicides, one somebody's suicidal or that depressed, that immediately needs to be addressed and certain things need to happen. So, so I get that and, and that has to happen. Um, but yeah, the trust thing is absolutely critical. And for me personally, I remember after my shooting, uh, the fatal shooting that, you know, we did see a counselor and we had a group debrief, but I can remember thinking in my head that let's just get through this. Let's check the box. Um, and let's get back to work. I wasn't thinking about maybe, is there anything wrong? Is there any real issues I really need to look at? It was more like, okay, let's talk about this. Everybody good. Yep. We're good. Let's go back. And, and, you know, that's part of that culture is that you don't want to be that one person in a group debrief who are hand, everybody, you look around at your partners and they're all like, I'm good to go. I'm good. Let's go back to work. And you're thinking inside, like, oh, I'm actually not good, but I don't feel saying that, especially in this group setting of a group debrief. And, um, so that's why group debriefs are great. 
Um, I think we need to have them. I think they're really important, but you also have to have that individual time with, like you said, somebody that you can absolutely trust. That That's the key right there. It's kind of challenging in a group space as well, because unless the group takes that uh, uh, culture of saying what I feel is normal, uh, then if everyone else is going out and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm ready, this is all good. And Sometimes that's genuine as well. It's not. It's not. Not. Not to say that um, that can't be a normal response as well. But if if your response is not the same, then you feel like you're a little bit on the outside. Outside. Can you talk a little bit about that that space around? You know, how do we go out and and or at least your views marry these two worlds together? Where obviously it's really important that we do, whether it be screens or monitoring or or we look at support. But being able to apply support, for example, could be around suicidality and making an assessment as to whether someone can continue to functionally you know, perform their duties because that, that's, a gray, that's a gray area. That's a really hard one which probably services struggle and, and, and they're grappling with how do we do this because the moment an incident occurs, a service is immediately under scrutiny around saying, well, you know, this this man or woman was uh, you know having some difficulties, and you know you you went out and kind of uh, said that they were competent, and now something's happened. So therefore, that that must be the link. It must be that their difficulties are the cause of what's happened. Versus you know there could be plenty of situations. There are plenty of situations where competency um, still uh, leads to lots of you know, terrible situations. Uh, you know, what initially comes to mind is taking advantage of the, the people that we have in our own agencies. Um, I'll give you an example. I, I recently taught um, or spoke at a, another police department that I, I never worked for, um, but they asked me to come speak to their officers. And um, I actually met somebody there who shared a very personal experience with me about some things that they had gone through. Well, it turns out that this, uh, this person, and they were high ranking at this agency, they actually opened up at a training uh, regarding peer support and PTSD and, and whatnot and shared their very personal experience um, about what they went through, about how they got better. And, and nobody, I mean, other than maybe a couple people very high up in the department knew about this, but 90% of the officers had no idea. But by that that person, especially in a leadership position, sharing that very personal experience and showing their vulnerability, I think, especially to those new officers, that's changing the culture right there. That mm. leadership, that, that's showing that, hey, you know, this lieutenant or this captain or sergeant, whatever, you know, rank they may be, they just opened up and shared about this very difficult experience they had. And they're not proud of it. They were ashamed of it at the time, but they shared it and they got better. And wow, you talk balls down, you talk about changing the culture. That's how you do it. And so what I've seen now is I've got agencies reaching out to me who want me to come officers and that's great. And I'm glad to do it. I think it's helpful, but I think it's much more helpful to have somebody within your own agency that you know to do that especially when you have no idea these people were suffering and going through that. It's like, wow, I had no idea, you know, 
and that's what this person told me is that countless people came up to him after this training and said, wow, thank you for sharing that. I had no idea you were struggling or going through this difficult time. And the power, as you say, comes from uh, having someone inside your ranks doing that rather than bringing a consultant in or, you know, someone that we're paying to come in to do a talk. It's actually coming from the inside and saying, yeah, and, and, and they're still, you know, performing that role. You know, this is something that we're in, in some sense, if it's, if it's displayed or, or um, uh, modeled, if it's modeled for others, then it already immediately says it's okay. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, let me give you the flip side of that too. Let's say you're a first responder who's out on injury for PTSI and other officers see how they're being treated by the administration negatively. Yes. It's perception behind it. And they go, wow, I I don't want to go through that and ask for help because if I ask for help, I'm going to be in the same boat as this person over here. Nobody's going to talk to me. Everybody's going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think I'm a, a danger to them and danger to myself. And so you can really make or break how you handle the people who need the help. And if officers see, a perfect example is if you help that officer and they come back to work and they're successful, that is, how powerful is that? You're telling officers that, you know, this person got what they needed, the department supported them. And now they're back doing a phenomenal job just like they did before. So more people are likely to ask for help as opposed to the opposite. Cause you know, things, things travel, people hear things and um, you know, they may, it may not be out there publicly, but they find out how treated and they find out what people are going through. And um, if they find out it's super negative, all you're doing is you're hindering people asking for help. And ultimately you're going to cost lives. That's the bottom line. And I'm not being extreme here. You're going to cost lives because the facts are that in this country, and I'm not sure about all over the world, but in this country, far more police officers die at their own hands than die by the hands of others. It's a fact. And, and it's probably true for firefighters, paramedics, a lot of the military, but nobody wants to talk. And the fact is, what it comes down to is you're much more likely to die at your own hands as a first responder than you are in an accident or the hands of another. I mean, think about that for a second. That's absolutely in, in, incredible. I'm just reading a book at the moment, uh, Homo Deus, um, from the same author as Sapiens, and he, he talks about, not specifically for first responders, but uh, he talks about the, the, the suicide rate um, you know, uh, superseding, you know, wars and, um, you know, and, 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 you know, murders and the like, uh, you know, is, is much greater and obviously, you know, support and, and being you know, understood and cared for is, is so paramount in these situations because it, it's that feeling of being alone, uh, you know, and that these feelings are unbearable and will never go away. You know, no one else has, has been able to recover. All of this seems at least that the time is proof uh, to, to, to go out and um, you know, uh, find a permanent uh, solution to what we uh, hopefully appreciate is a 
temporary experience that that you know, the, the the experience of ptsi you know will, will, will change and and you know with, with 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 support and help and whether it be therapy or whether it be good mentorship you know we, we we've seen a lot of these experiences can be um you know either either changed or or lived with you know in a in a much more um you know liberating way where we can kind of uh, resolve some of those, you know, struggles and the tension between what we're feeling, and what what I believe I should be feeling. Absolutely, and and here's the key that these suicide numbers, they're they're being addressed more openly now. And there's groups out there that are making this happen. Um, here in the states, is one of those groups, and they're on the front lines of this. And they're they're the ones that are changing the culture of people reporting these suicides in the first place, because. The thing is, these these have been swept under the rug. They've been hidden. They've been covered up for so long, and and for lots of different reasons. Um, some good intentioned, as far as the families being taken care of and whatnot. But the fact is, it isn't that these last couple of years the suicide numbers have all of a sudden just jumped up and increased. They've always been there. It's just that they haven't been brought out. Mm. And so finally now. They're actually the numbers, and I argue that these numbers are much lower than they really are, but at least we're getting a lot more realistic numbers out there, and that's what's helping to change the culture because people are like, wow, I didn't know this is happening. Are you like, it's been happening. It just hasn't been talked about, and so because these numbers are getting out there, people are starting to talk about it, and now heads of agencies they're like, wow, we actually got to do something about this now. I mean, we really have to address this, not just, you know, check the boxes and have, have a peer support team and say you have these resources, but no, we have to actually aggressively address this. And when you say address this, you're, you're referencing more so on a cultural level about how we um, support first responders, personnel, whether it be military, whatever the case might be, how we support them as individuals. Absolutely. And, you know, me, me personally, for my case, and, you know, I haven't really talked about this, and, you know, suicide, it can happen a number of different ways. And for me, I wasn't going to hang myself or shoot myself or anything like that, but I was going to go out on duty. Because here's the key. If you die on duty as a first responder, uh, you're memorialized in many cases, your family's taken care of. Um, wow, it was just a bad accident. You know, I mean, you talk about maybe I just step back into traffic when I'm on this traffic stop, or maybe I just get in a car accident, or maybe I run into a dangerous situation without waiting for my cover. And I did that several times because I, I didn't care. I got to the point where I didn't care I died on duty because at least I'd be remembered, I'd be a hero, and my family would be taken care of. And so I purposely put my officer safety aside and put myself in very dangerous situations, knowing full well that I could die or something bad could happen to me. And, and that happens a lot. And that's the culture. That's what needs to be addressed. So let's change the culture. Let's talk about this openly. Let's normalize it because it is normal. Was that for, for yourself I? Uh, a gradual reckless approach that you started to to have in in terms of how to deal with what you were experiencing that was that overwhelming the way that you dealt with was just being more and more reckless or were there some times where you thought I'm going to purposefully put myself in in danger's way in the hope that potentially you know uh, 
this situation might go bad and, um, you know, uh, my family will be looked after. Now, there is, remember, at least three specific situations where I purposely put my officer safety aside, rushed into dangerous situations, knowing how dangerous they were, thinking that if it happens, it happens. You know, I mean, yeah, it, it kind of sucks, but at least it's on duty and it happened. Um, but no, I, I reality. And one of them specifically was a guy with multiple knives. And this was after my fatal shooting with a guy with a large butcher knife. And I knew I was going to be confronting a guy with multiple knives. Out of my police department, I beat all my officers there and I contacted the guy at gunpoint and he was in the process of pulling a knife out of his pocket. And I was a millisecond away from shooting the guy. And it turns out, I think he had like six or seven knives on him. He was a convicted felon many times over. His criminal history was like 30 pages long. I mean, a violent subject. And it worked out. Nothing happened. But I should have waited for cover. I should have waited for more officers. I didn't. I wanted to be the first one there. And clearly that's a situation that very easily could have escalated and gone wrong. Absolutely. And in some ways, I hope that it did. Yeah, yeah. And this is what you mean by the there's an underreporting, or, or, or the numbers don't reflect how um, what the actual numbers are when you know uh, there there actually is a a suicide, or you know in in other cases where maybe there's been an attempt, uh, but uh, you know it's been unsuccessful. Absolutely. I mean, I think a, a good example is car accidents. A lot of officers die in vehicle collisions where, I mean, how often do you hear about a solo patrol vehicle into a power pole or a tree? Um, I've heard of a a lot of those and I've, I've heard some personal stories of, you know, I'm not going to mention names or anything like that, but of officers who are going through difficult times and maybe they got into a huge argument with somebody right before that happened. Um, I mean, you just never know. And that's not to say that these vehicle accidents are suicides. I'm, I'm not saying that by any means. Sure. Um, I would even argue that the majority of them aren't suicides. But, you know, the thing is, is if that's the way you want to go on duty, it's pretty easy to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, no different than if you're in our state, we have troopers or traffic officers on a vehicle stop, especially like on a freeway. I mean, if you just step back one or two feet behind you and there's an oncoming car, done. Right? But it was an accident. I mean, that's not, no one's going to think that was a suicide. You know, I mean, even a car accident, no one's going to think that's a suicide. It was not, it was unfortunate. It was an accident. You know, they were doing their job and they died in the line of duty. Um, but that does happen. It's reality. People don't want to talk about it, but it's absolute reality. And we haven't even touched on the great strain and stress that this brings in on a personal life where, Uh, as we're trying to cope with these situations, how we might be with our loved ones, how we might be with our spouses, how we might be a lot shorter. I know that you did mention, you know, being, being more, I think, irritable or even being an, I think you you might've used the word ass, Um, you know, that, that, that has an effect on, on how we are with our loved ones. And as we disconnect with them or we argue with them or we get into, you know, difficult times, we feel more and more alone. Well, it, it cost me on my marriage. I mean, just to get to the point, it, it absolutely cost me on marriage. And after my shooting, I, I shut off 
I isolated. I medicated with alcohol. Um, I didn't open up ever about what I was going through. Um, Once we started having problems, that's when I finally tried to open up. It it was too late at that point. I mean, I completely pushed her away. Um, I didn't want to be vulnerable. I didn't want to talk about my feelings. Um, You know, I'm sure she felt absolutely alone. And I know I was irritable. I didn't want to socialize. I didn't want to go see, you know, family and go to parties. And, you know, I was very social growing up, but I got to the point where I didn't want to go places. I didn't want to be around people. I just want to be by myself. And a lot of times that meant either drinking wine or just sleeping the day away and just escaping reality and pretending like this was all going to go away. Um, but no, it, it absolutely cost me my marriage. Absolutely. Did others see that in you as well? Did obviously your your uh, spouse at the time clearly saw you sort of decline? Did did others notice as well, or were you able to sort of keep that, I suppose, hidden? You know, what's kind of interesting is that after I I retired, um, I ended up meeting with some people that I used to work with, and they actually told me that several people commented or noticed. Like, hey, you know, Mike's going through a lot of stuff here and he's not his normal son. And so, you know, it was kind of like one of those things where everybody was waiting for the other person to either say something or do something, but nobody did. And so it was kind of like talked about in very small circles and um, it's, but it wasn't addressed. It was almost like, when is somebody going to do something about this? But there was absolute warning signs. There was absolute indicators um, people picked up on it. And, um, you know, a lot of people didn't though. I mean, they probably just thought I was an asshole. I mean, honestly, but, um, there were people that absolutely noticed it. They picked up on it, but again, they probably didn't feel comfortable even talking about it or addressing it themselves. And, and again, that's that culture. Um, a lot of people don't want to go down that road. Um, I mean, how often in a day do you hear somebody say, how are you doing today? I'm in, in departments in the military. You walk down the hall, you see a commanding officer or supervisor, and they ask you how you're doing. You say, great, sir, doing great. And you keep walking, right? You don't, you don't stop and say, actually, sir, uh, my life is falling apart. Marriage is falling apart. Uh, I've been very depressed. I've been drinking too much. No, you don't do that. You just say, oh, everything's great. You put on a fake smile on your face and you keep walking. And, and that's the culture. I mean, I was actually specifically told that a high-ranking person comes down and asks you how you're doing, just smile, everything's good. I was told specifically. Wow. Do you recall any time where anyone did reach out, but you weren't able to to kind of um, accept that at the time where where, where, where someone kind of tapped you on the shoulder and and did ask how you're doing? Well, the, the time that sticks out the most is when I finally decided help. And so I, I, I basically called my lieutenant, my watch commander, and this is almost four years after my shooting and my lawsuit just ended. And I said, look, I need to get help. And so I, I took myself off. I asked for help. But what I did was I cut all ties with everybody in my agency. So I had people that tried calling me. They tried texting me. Uh, they were checking in on me, but I was too embarrassed. I was ashamed. I couldn't tell anybody why I was off. I, w- I was dealing with skin cancer issues at the same time. And so if people asked, I would just tell them it was skin cancer. And that wasn't the reason why I was off. I was off because of PTSI. It took me over two years before I could even feel comfortable telling anybody, including close friends, I mean, very close friends, 
about what I was going through and that I was dealing with PTSD. So ashamed and I was so embarrassed. And so the, the interesting thing is I actually started believing that most of these people didn't. And, and what it was, was I cut them off. They didn't cut me off. I actually, but somehow I made myself believe that they just stopped caring. And it wasn't that at all. It was just the fact that I pushed them so far away. And, you know, someone can text you and call you, but when you don't return or reply after like four or five attempts, they're just going to give up and stop. And so that's what I did. And, and I feel bad about it today. A lot of people that did care and did try to reach out. And I've had good since. And I've tried to repair a lot of those uh, friendships and mend those bridges. But again, I mean, I was ashamed and I was embarrassed. And the beautiful thing about me being able to speak now, especially on these interviews that go worldwide, like I have nothing to hide. Um, I'm not ashamed. I know that me asking for help is the most courageous thing I've ever done in my entire life. Not anything I did in the military, dangerous situation I was in as a cop. It was me finally asking for help. That is the most courageous and bravest thing I've ever done in my life. And, and that's the paradigm shift right there. Well, the, the shift that I'm hearing is, is the greatest fear was changing how you looked at yourself, you know, to, to, to go out and say I'm hurting was counter, well, it was contradictory to what you stood up for. You know, what you stood up for was strength uh, and honor. Uh, and, you know, uh, the opposite was this kind of fear of, you know, weakness, you know, and if so, if people knew about it, that would bring shame on me or I'd be rejected. But in actual fact, your identity now you know, has shifted across to, to saying more about, well, no, in actual fact, it's, it's the most courageous thing I've ever done because it's been the scariest. I, I risked uh, everything on telling people how I was feeling. Uh, but having gone through that, now you, you see with different eyes? Absolutely. I, I have a whole new life. I mean, I have to tell you that my outlook on life has changed completely. I have a young daughter and um, she's my world and so my, my full-time job is being a father. And that's what I identify as now. You know, I was an Air Force officer. I was a police sergeant. I'm not anymore. I'm very proud to have done that. And I'm honorably retired. But that's not my identity. I'm much more empathetic. I'm much more sympathetic. And, uh, you know, I, I have a whole, like, second chance at life. That's the thing is that I feel like I have a whole nother chance to live. And, and so it's kind of a mixed blessing that this happened, you know, to give up my career because I got to the point where I couldn't do it anymore. But that's why I'm doing what I'm doing now, because I believe that if we can get to people earlier, we can save their careers, their lives, and they can still do the job and still have that great outlook on life. Um, it's, it's very possible. And so I'm blessed. And now I'm just giving back. I mean, I, I enjoy talking to others and helping others. And, and that's what it's all about. Obviously, there's going to be others out there who are listening to this who uh, are maybe going through their own PTSI experience. Uh, can you talk about what that pivotal moment was like for you? Obviously, you'd withdrawn from a lot of people. You were being reckless. You, you know, put yourself in situations where if you were killed, um, you know, in, in, in so many ways, you're kind of okay with that. You're just feeling completely helpless and hopeless. And you made, you know, 
a decision at some point to, to, to change that trajectory and, and ask for help. Can, can you talk us through a little bit about uh, how you, uh, your thought processes around that um, uh, that might be helpful for other people to hear? Absolutely. So um, I'm going to go back a little bit and it was right after my lawsuit finally ended. We, we prevailed in the lawsuit. It was four years after my shooting. So we're talking, uh, I believe September, 2016. And um, when that ended, I honestly thought like my life was going to get better. I thought this weight was going to be lifted off my shoulders. And I think in my mind, I created this, this belief that it was all hinging on this lawsuit And once the lawsuit went away, all my problems were going to go away. And what happened was the lawsuit actually made things a lot worse because I sit there for two weeks in a federal courtroom and basically hear all these crazy expert witnesses with their crazy theories and make these accusations against my partners and I. And, and, And basically it made me start to question what I had done. It made me question my beliefs. It made me second guess. When I know that we save lives. I know that I couldn't have done anything different, but it actually made me start to think otherwise. And so I, I went even further down, downward spiral. And fast forward to November uh, that same year, and my best friend, he was a uh, reserve officer. So he was a volunteer that worked at my agency, and he served 35 years as a basically a volunteer police officer. And he was also a Vietnam veteran. He was in the army and served in a Vietnam prison where he was a prison guard. And um, turns out he was there for this extreme riot. People were dying left and right in front of him. And um, I didn't realize it, but he had PTSD. And he never talked to me. And he actually tried to kill himself that November. When I was on duty, and this is my, this is my best friend. I was on duty. He lived in the city I worked in. He tried to kill himself. He cut both wrists. He stabbed himself in the torso multiple times. He overdosed on a bunch of prescription medication. And I saw him right when they were rushing him into the, into the ER. I thought he was going to die. They were rushing him into emergency surgery, blood everywhere. And, and I had a quick conversation with him. And I thought it was going to be the last time I ever saw him. Thank God he lived. But a month after that, I finally, after just thinking about it and thinking about it and going through that and seeing it, I made the decision I can never do that to my daughter. So the bottom line is that my best friend saved my life by trying to take his life. Mm. I mean, I, I can't put it any simpler. And I tell him that to this day, I see him every week for lunch. He absolutely saved my life. And thank God he's alive today. But because of what he did, it made me pull my head out of my ass and realize where I was going and where I was going to end up. And I didn't want to do that to my daughter. I didn't want to do that to my family members. And so that's why I finally asked for help is because of him. He saved my life. It's interesting that uh, you refer to him as your best friend, but you guys hadn't expressed your own experiences with, with, with one another. Even at that level, this sort of male strength, macho-ness or, or, or persona just doesn't come out. I mean, exactly, right? I've known this guy at this point for, it was like 14 years, over 14 years, and I had no clue how much he was suffering. I had no clue what he was going through. And this is my best friend. I mean, how, how messed up is that? 
because I didn't tell him how I was feeling. He didn't tell me. It doesn't have anything to say about our level of friendship. It was that machismo. It was that culture. Um, especially back then, you didn't talk about that kind of stuff back in the Vietnam War. And we have so many veterans that are struggling from that war, current wars, Iraq, Afghanistan, because it's the culture. You don't talk about that stuff. That's weakness. Mm. It's almost like the, the culture uh, is beyond any one service. It's not a military culture or a police culture or a no. first responder. It's a culture of, of humanity, how we have you know, propped up men as being you know, tough and strong. And, and that has meant, you know, this kind of association has meant you don't have emotions. You don't feel you just get on rather than being able to still be tough and strong and, 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 and masculine and lift heavy things and I don't know, fix, fix our walls that are broken or whatever it might be and emotional too. It's not one or the other. It's a one and the other. Absolutely. And, you know, that, that starts in childhood. And I'm sure, you know, you know, and you talk about this often, but it, it, it starts in childhood and it starts in how we raise, you know, our children and how we raise boys versus girls and, you know, how we tell them to tough it up and don't cry and don't show emotion. And that all starts at an early age and it just builds and builds. I'm not sure how old your daughter is. Has it changed how you uh, sort of raise, raise your daughter, how you speak with your daughter? It actually has because, um, you know, before this incident happened, I was more like, you know, tough it up, like don't cry. And, and, and now we have conversations and we talk about, um, you know, appropriateness of crying and that's different for everybody. I mean, really what it comes down to is, you know, all these situations in life, they affect everybody differently. So what may affect you in one way affects me in a different way. And I talked to my daughter about this. And so if she's genuinely upset, well, let's understand it. Let's talk about it. Um, let's get through it. You know, let's not brush it off. Let's not ignore it and say, just tough it up without actually getting to what the issue is. You know, let's find out why they were so scared or let's find out how that affected them. And, you know, that applies to adulthood. I mean, let's talk about why almost dying affected you. How did that make you feel? I mean, you know, this should be applied at all ages, all levels, um, it's obviously better if we can start when they're younger, but in my case and a lot of first responders, um, we need to start now. Well, I think the evidence su suggests that, uh, it doesn't matter if it hasn't happened in childhood, it can start at any age and we can begin that process. I mean, obviously the, uh, ideal might be in, in, in childhood, but, uh, you know, therapy doesn't, doesn't go out and say, oh, look. You're too old. You can't engage in this process. Exactly. <laughs> well, you should have come back 35 years earlier. Um, we should have come in 35 years earlier. We would have, we would have addressed some of that. It's actually addressed on a day-to-day -day basis. There, there, there isn't a time for it to be addressed other than you know, in the now. Absolutely. And um, you know what's interesting in my, in my work, volunteer work, I see so many first responders that usually it's a year or two after they've retired where they're sitting at home. Um, they're not operational. They've kind of lost that identity and purpose. And they have this time to start thinking about 30 years of what they've gone through. And a lot of times that's when they'll finally ask for help or realize that they have an issue. Um, so it's never too late, I mean, to, to start this process or to ask for help or to address these issues. Um, as you know, 
you know, the longer you wait to ask for help or address it, the longer it's probably to get through it. But I firmly believe you can get through it. Let's address it as it ha happens. Let's not wait till 30 plus years to try to try to fix it all. Michael, what are your thoughts about this tension between what we're talking about being making yourself vulnerable, talking about how you're coping, that you're looking for some support, and also how it might affect in, for some people in their particular service, it might still affect their their um, you know career. How do we how do we sort of hold that tension? And that's a tough question. Um, really, it comes down to each individual agency or department, um, and it comes down to their culture. Um, if the culture doesn't support it, people aren't going to share their feelings. They're not going to ask for help. I mean, that's that's the bottom line. If the culture is one that does support it, then they're not going to have that fear, that repercussion of, of asking for help. Um, you know, in my personal case, I, I showed emotion and I suffered the consequences because of it. And that was the culture. I don't think that's the culture now. Um, I think the culture has changed. I think it's gotten a lot better. In fact, I know it's gotten better at my agency. Um, so, you know, we, we talk about careers and positions, but, but honestly, I think what's more important is we talk about lives and no promotion, no special assignment is more important than your life. And so, Although people may be thinking that, I think we need to start thinking about, you know, what's more important, you being there for your family at home and for your relatives or for this position that you're aspiring to. Because it's a job. And I found out that, guess what, when you're gone, that place still goes on. Uh, the job is still there. People immediately fill your role. And uh, often you're forgotten about and things just move on. So, um, I think it's really important that they first focus on their life and getting better because once they get better, they're going to be more successful. They're going to do better in those jobs or those special assignments. They're going to get promoted, but you got to work on yourself first before you should be focusing on those special assignments, promotions, or positions. Yeah, well said. I think here in Australia also there's been an improvement. I know that there's a lot of uh, you know, whether it be military service, uh, service men and women, whether it be, you know, the, the, the AFP or uh, police, um, you know, all our, all our first responders, there's still a lot of people who are going through mental difficulties, um, which is what humanity brings, right? We are, we're all going through challenges and whether it's a diagnosis or whether it's going out and taking some medication, uh, they're, there is now, I, I believe, a much larger allowance for for that conversation to, to occur. And, and in, in some sense, you know, uh, we're all the pioneers in, in, in having that conversation and, and many have certainly done so prior, prior to us. And, and, and Michael, I thank you for your contributions as well. And even in this conversation to, to, to bring this, you know, to everyone's attention and saying that think, things are changing. Uh, similarly, we've got to do our part as well and, and not only talk about reaching out, uh, you know, focusing on the personal self, but also, you know, accepting some of the support that might be there, um, you know, tapping into might not be the organization, but it could be someone like our best friend or, you know, a family member that we can't trust. Um, before we finish up, uh, any final words for those who, who are maybe thinking about it? They're on the cusp, you know, they're having a hard time. How, how can they go out and start focusing on themselves as, as a starting point? You know, most importantly, they just need to know they're not alone. Um, there are so many people 
in the same situation. Uh, there's so many people going through the similar uh, feelings, similar events. And so just know that there are tons of resources out there. Um, there's hotlines you can call. Um, there's anonymous resources. There's ones through your agencies. But the thing is, you have to ask for the help. That's what I had to do. Um, a lot of times, like I said, people are going to ignore the warning signs. Um, they're going to hope that it goes away. Um, they're going to want to believe it's not happening. And so you have to look out for number one, that's look out for yourself. And you have to get the courage and the bravery to ask for help. And I, and I can assure you that once you finally do, and it's going to take work, it's going to take time. Uh, for me, it took a few years and I'm still working on it today. Um, but I can tell you I'm in a much better place than I was before I asked for help. So just just do it. Just ask for help. That's great advice. And before we finish up, how can people get in contact with you or find out more about the work that you're, you're doing? Anywhere they can um, uh, look online? I think the easiest place is LinkedIn. Uh, I have a big presence on LinkedIn. Uh, you can just look up my first and last name. Um, I post a lot of articles on PTSI or PTSD. Um, I also honor fallen officers who have uh, died in the line of duty. Um, but just a great resource. You can shoot me a message on there. I check it every single day and I'll be happy to get back to you. Fantastic. And just for those listening, uh, it's Michael Sugru, which is S-U-G-R-U-E. Um, and just look him up on LinkedIn. Michael, really appreciate your, 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 your time and obviously your service in getting this conversation out there with regards to, you know, looking after ourselves and, and, and being vulnerable, um, you know, despite what our greatest fears are, you know, around really rejection and, and, and uh, you know, that, that um, it's something to be ashamed of. And in actual fact, we, we, we can see it's, you know, one of the strongest positions of courage that, that anyone could uh, uphold. So thank you for that. Absolutely. It does get better, I promise. We'll leave it at that then. I think, I think that, that that's 100% on, uh, on the money. It does get better. So, um, you know, anyone out there a little bit concerned? reach out to, to, to others and also, you know, be able to accept that it's got to start from, from you. So I think it's very well said by, by, by yourself, Michael. All the very best and uh, look forward to obviously the, the, the seeing the work that you're doing evolve um, and, and changing the culture of, of, you know, how we all do our work, you know, in a much better way. Sounds great. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.